0: Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Sermon this morning is entitled, Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And hear God's word this morning. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shalatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Declares the Lord of hosts. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. This morning's timeless theological principle is work hard for God is with you. If you remember last week, we ended the text with God stirring up the people in the sixth month. And what happened in the sixth month? God moved all of His people to begin working on His temple that was lying in ruins. Uh, We learned last week that it is God who stirs up His elect to obedience. And so this week, we turn to chapter 2 of Haggai, and we see that we are now in the seventh Month, So that not too much time has passed. I just want you to understand chronologically where we are. Last week was month 6, this week is month 7, last week was chapter 1, this week is chapter 2. Not a lot of time has passed. And as they're working, God gives them a tremendous word of encouragement, but it doesn't start off very encouraging, to be honest with you. In verse 2, we see that God is addressing everyone from political leaders to religious leaders down to the ordinary people on the street. It's a message for all people, for the rich and the powerful and the poor and the destitute. Verse 2, in fact, starts off with an imperative. Speak now to Zerubbabel and Haggai a faithful messenger of God, what does he do? Well, he goes and he preaches. So the first principle today is quite simple and straightforward. Christians must faithfully preach the word of God as delivered by God. This is an important principle for us today. When you came out to church this morning, what did you mainly come out for? You came primarily for the exposition and teaching of God's Word. Exposition is a fancy word for explanation. Why? Because you believe that this book, when this book speaks, God speaks. That's an Augustine quote from many years ago. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. You believe that. You believe that with all of your heart, and that's why you're here this morning. You revere and hold sacred this hour on Sunday because you hold God sacred and holy. And so my my job as the pastor of this church each Sunday as described in Ephesians 4.13 is to simply give you the Word of God to feed you God's Word and enable you to understand and know God's Word. If you leave here today, without a good understanding of today's text, then that's my responsibility. My responsibility, and this was the responsibility of the priests in the Old Testament as well, is that when the people of God gather to hear the Word of God, they leave having understood the Word of God. This is why pastors are called to be able to teach. Where do we as Christians today most readily come to a conclusion of this principle of the sufficiency of Scripture? Where do we principally get that today? Well, the Reformation principle is known as sola scriptura. And that principle has to do with the fact that the Bible is the supreme authority for our lives and that it is sufficient regarding all matters of Christian faith and practice. It is the Latin term for Scripture alone. The doctrine is the reason for our belief that we can be absolutely firm on anything that is clearly taught in Scripture. In fact, we ought to be very dogmatic about those things that Scripture is clear and dogmatic about, because conviction and faith drives our practice. We would even say that if you did anything without faith, that to you is sin. I know some people don't like the fact that Christians are certain and dogmatic, especially in our postmodern age when it comes to things like religion. But Scripture actually informs us that if we were to do anything without conviction, without faith, that for us it would be sin. So whatever we do, whatever we advise, whatever we uh, strive for in life, we ought to do it in faith. That means that we need to come to a point where sometimes in Scripture we have to pray and wrestle with things before we act. Because if we act upon things without being sure, it would be sinful. But what does sola scriptura mean? It means that the Bible has revealed to us everything we need to know regarding salvation and Christian living. This is a huge principle. A big principle. It means that you don't have to go to a psychologist. You don't have to worry about people finding the lost letter of Paul later down the road. Everything, and I mean everything we need regarding eternal life and Christian living has been delivered to us once and for all in this book. And when we talk about a closed canon, we mean that the Bible is complete. There will not be another letter of Paul found and added to this book. There will not be a further revelation such as the Book of the Mormon added to this book. The doctrine of Sola Scriptura not only says that everything in this book is sufficient for all of Christian life and eternal life, but it also declares that the book is complete and it is now closed. You don't have to worry about believing in something and then dying and later they find an extra gospel somewhere that changes the path to eternal life. You don't have to worry about that. One might have put it this way. Listen to this. And I think he captures it. so Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. Now, I'm going to unpack that for you because some people think that just because something is implicit in Scripture, that it doesn't carry the force or the weight of something that is Explicit in scripture. I want to give you an example of this. First, from context. A few months ago, a famous pastor here in New York City was asked by a New York Times reporter what he thought about gay marriage. And his response was that, well, Jesus never taught on homosexual marriage, so I will not teach on it. That's a grave error. While it is true that Jesus never explicitly spoke on homosexual marriage, or homosexuality for that matter, He did, by teaching that marriage was for one man and one woman for life, implicitly declare that homosexuality was wrong. And so it is important for us to recognize that implicit teaching within Scripture has force and is binding for the believer, as well as those are that are explicit. Paul may have explicitly taught homosexuality in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and Jesus may not have, but it does not mean that the implicit teacher, teachings of Christ, lack any force. Another example would be Matthew 99. If we get that verse up, Let's use this as a as a case study for both the explicit and implicit teachings of Scripture as taught by Sola Scriptura. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, what is the clear explicit teaching of this text? Well, it clearly teaches that Remarriages, except for the ones after divorce due to spousal infidelity, are adultery. In fact, we call this explicit teaching because I don't even have to say anything. I just simply have to quote Jesus, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery. That's it. All I really have to do is just quote the text, and the text speaks for itself. You could try to play around with it and come up with all different types of interpretation as you tried to uh, twist it, but the text itself is explicitly clear. I really don't really have to even explain it as much, um, because the text is so explicit. Now, the reason why the second marriage is called adultery by Christ, is because God is recognizing the validity of the first marriage, and the invalidity of the second marriage. That's why it's called adultery. Let's look at Mark 10, 11, for a clear, explicit teaching of this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So here's the question. The last word here, her, who's it referring to? Is it referring to the woman that you've remarried? Or is it referring to your wife? Well, it's clear it's referring to your wife. And so there you have the fact that irrespective of the, the fact that you get a divorce in court, and you get remarried in court, in the eyes of God, your second marriage is adultery against her, your first wife. The only woman that God legitimately recognizes as your wife, evidently, which is what Mark 10 makes very clear. The only woman that God sees as your wife is the first one that you married. You marry another one, you're committing adultery against her. Now that kind of verse, or those kind of verses, are known as the explicit teachings of Scripture. Now an implicit teaching of Scripture would be, if we get back to Matthew 19.9, would be polygamy. When you read Matthew 19.9, do you see anything in the text regarding polygamy? Explicitly? No, you do not. All right. If you're looking for the word polygamy, you're not going to see it there. But an implicit teaching of Scripture would be that as we read Matthew 99, we understand that Jesus is now also firmly striking down polygamy, a practice like divorce and remarriage, which was once practiced by godly men in the Old Testament. The text never explicitly teaches anything about polygamy, but by solid implication, we can firmly conclude that if remarriages are invalid in the eyes of God, because God sees the first marriage as still in effect, then any second, third, fourth, or fifth marriage is also invalid in the eyes of God. This is what is meant by implicit teaching. So through both explicit and implicit teaching, the Bible teaches us all we need to know regarding salvation and Christian living in a manner that pleases God. So let me recap this. Matthew 99 as, as the example. Explicit teaching here, if we could get that up. The explicit teaching of Matthew 99 is that remarriage is adultery. We all see that very clearly. The implicit teaching is that polygamy is banned. The guide to action for us is to firmly call for the breaking up of remarriages. And by doing so, we are seeking to end adultery. If we do not call for the breaking up of remarriages, then we have no firm biblical reason for prohibiting polygamy. And that is very true. If you do not call for the breaking up of remarriage, then you do not have a firm base for prohibiting polygamy. You do not. And this is why implicit teaching is just as ex- important for us in the doctrine of sola scriptura as explicit teaching. But let me also briefly mention what the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is not. Sola Scriptura does not mean that the Bible tells us all truth. The Bible is indeed right about everything that it says, but it does not say everything. The Bible has uh, nothing, for example, about the rules of Spanish grammar. The Bible doesn't say anything about how to make a watch nor does it say a thing about computer programming. What Sola Scriptura says, or teaches, is that when the Bible does speak about something, on the issues that it does speak about, it is fully trustworthy and truthful. Further, it goes on and says that through the both explicit and implicit teachings of Scripture, you have all that's required, not so much for making a watch, or the rules of Spanish grammar, you have everything you need for salvation and Christian living. You have everything in this book to live a life that pleases God. That's what Sola Scriptura teaches. That when the Bible speaks, God speaks. In fact, the Apostle Peter goes further and he says this. He says that the words contained in this book are more certain truths than any other truth that we have. Second Peter 1.19 We have a more sure word of prophecy, to which you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the day star rises in your hearts. All truth is from God. You ever heard the comment made by people, all truth is God's truth? That's true. But not all truths are equally important. Peter is saying the truths covered in this book are of infinite, utmost importance. You may not know, may or may not know how the rules of Spanish grammar, you may or may not know how to make a watch, but that doesn't matter as much as the truths contained in this book. Infinite worth. So when the Bible says anything about eternal life, marriage, divorce, um, even food laws that may still pertain to our society today. Um, whether it's offered to idols or anything like that. Um, dress. We, we studied in a discipleship class last week. What does Paul mean when women should not wear gold and pearls and expensive clothing? What does that mean? Um when the Bible speaks on something regarding Christian living or salvation, that's binding, and not only is it binding, we can be sure that if we obey, we are walking the path of life. That's what Sola Scriptura teaches. It is very certain, a more certain word than anything else. You know, as Southern Baptists, each morning we start off by reading the Baptist uh, faith and message. Uh And here's what it says about Scripture. This really is the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, written by Baptists. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of Himself to man. That right there is a sermon. It's awesome. Because if God never revealed Himself to us, we would never know Him. But here's what it says. It's a faith statement. It's us declaring each morning... That we when we read this book, this is not any other piece of ancient literature. These words are actually God's words. That's a declarative faith statement. And what an awesome one it is. But it continues. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. Again, another faith statement. It had God for its author. Yes, it was written by men, but God really used them so that God captured every word the way He wanted it. It had God for his author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. And so if we continue, it reveals the principles by which God judges us. God will judge you by what is written in this book. And therefore is, and by the way, whether you're ignorant of it or not, God will judge you by these principles. And will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union. Why are we gathered here today? Why do we have fellowship here today? Ultimately, because of this book. And it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. The supreme standard by which all human conduct should be tried. So when we look at gay marriage and we say, that's wrong, on what basis? On this standard. This standard is what guides and determines, judges our conduct course, that presupposes that there is a right and wrong way to live life. Now, of course, uh, Westminster, the Presbyterians have their own way of saying the exact same thing. So let's look at the Westminster's Confession of the Doctrine of Sola Scriptura, which I wholeheartedly agree with as well. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. What is Westminster saying there? Well, I just taught it a few minutes ago. Expressly set down, explicit teaching of Scripture, necessary consequence may be deduced, implicit teaching of Scripture. That's what Westminster is saying. They're saying exactly what I just taught you that both the explicit and implicit teachings of Scripture are both binding and very important for us to get. Right? Good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, which means what? That when we read Bible, logic is often used by the Holy Spirit. Don't think that the Bible and logic run against each other. They don't. God didn't make logic. Logic is the way God thinks. Well, pastor, it never explicitly says that. What you're doing is deducing. Yes, and so what? That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what the doctrine of Sola Scriptura says. uh, its good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men now this is big this is what's going to keep you from falling into a heresy when someone comes knocking at your door which they do the modern day Arians or Mormons or whoever come knocking at your door and say this is good but we have a new revelation And we say no, because we hold to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. We believe that this book is complete and sufficient. So what we see here is, through the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, we firmly declare that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And this is why Haggai's opening is so important. If God tells us to speak, evangelize, and proclaim, then we must and Haggai does. I urge you, regardless of what it is, whether perhaps it's evangelism. And some of you I see on Thursday nights, and I believe that's awesome. But some of you are reading tough passages of Scripture, and, and it's literally as God is speaking to Haggai, God is speaking to you, right? Don't go for that IHOP stuff or modern day prophets. I don't, you don't need that. Sola Scriptura also tells you that everything you need for Christian living is right here. So if the Bible is speaking to you, regardless of the topic, be like Haggai and be moved to action. If He tells you to speak, be brave and speak. If He tells you to come out of something, be courageous and cut it off. If He instructs you to move into action, don't wait. And like Abraham, act on it immediately. Moving on to verses 3 and 4. Very interesting as you read verses 3 and 4. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Apparently, among the exiles who had come back from Babylon, there were a good amount of people who were young enough when they went into exile, which was 66 years before this letter was written. They're now in their 70s or 80s. And they actually remember the former temple and in all its glory. So God, in verse 3, calls for all the people who remember the first temple to actually remember it. The old temple and its all its glory could have, if you sat there and, and thought about it, it could have been immensely discouraging for the people building the new temple. And you have to ask yourself, why does God ask these two rhetorical questions? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? God knows there are people there, so they're raising their hands. How do you see it now? Well, God knows the answer to that. This is is really garbage. I remember Solomon's temple. It was glorious. And then he just answers it himself with another question. God says, this Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And the people are sitting there going, Well, as a matter of fact, God, yes, this is nothing. This temple is nothing compared to the first one. The place is empty. It's desolate. This is discouraging, God. Thank you very much. Why are you bringing this up? that you were supposed to encourage us, God. But then here comes the word of encouragement as the people are working. Three times God instructs Israel to be strong. Why does He do that? So that they could work. Three times. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Why? So that you can work for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Principle number two work for God is with you. Work for God is with you. The the phrase found in verse 5 my spirit remains in your midst is often considered as the strongest statement of God's ongoing presence in the entire Old Testament. That, that verse 5 statement is a powerful statement. God is with you. More important than God having been with you in your past is the question, is God with you today? Now, I read your journals. I speak to some of you. And I hear about how God has been with you in your past. I I hear some great testimonies. But that's not as important as the question, is God with you today? Is God with you today? More often than not, our memories of the past debilitate us and inhibit forward progress. Paul teaches, therefore, that Christians should not dwell in the past. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we all want to forget the past, especially if our past is filled with mistakes and sin. Amen? But what Paul is actually instructing us here also is to forget the past even if it's filled with glory. And Haggai's doing the same thing. Why? Because there's future work to be done. Athletes are keen regarding this principle. Last year's championship was last year's. As glorious as that was, there's work to be done this year. You don't sit on your laurels. You've got to move forward. Because as long as you sit reminiscing about the glorious past, the present slips right from your grip. It's debilitating. There's a goal this year, strain forward with all your might. Must have I think the application for us couldn't be any clearer. God is clearly seeking to do a new work in our midst. Some of you might be sitting here today and thinking, wow, this church is smaller than it was two years ago or three years ago. Compared to yesterday's glory, today might seem as a day of nothing. But here is the clear word from God in verse 4 for all of us today. Here it is work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Matthew puts it this way. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some of you might be wondering, why is Pastor Stephen so big on divorce and remarriage? Well, in this season I have to be because of what we're going through, but also because of this text. Divorce and remarriage is something that Jesus himself explicitly commanded. And that's why I have to be faithful to this. In fact, he does it four times in three different Gospels. Furthermore, I believe with all my heart that if you die in remarriages, you do go to hell. So I love and care for souls. But let's take a look at this. We all love this last part. We love the part where it says, I am with you always. And you're just like, yes! That allows us to then say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We put that on T-shirts and on sneakers, and we love that verse. But before we jump to that, let's look at the antecedent. In other words, let's look at what comes before. I am with you always. But let's go before that. What do we see first? Before we see the covenant terminology of God's presence constantly being with us, what we see here is go the defo- go go out, make disciples and teach them to obey. In other words, work. It's literally the same message as Haggai. Both Matthew and Haggai tell God's people, go out and work. The antecedent, and as you go, I am with you. First of all, let's make this clear. If you're living in sin, God will not be with you. In fact, he's going to work against you. And if you're his child, he's going to actively discipline you. Think of Jonah going against God. You don't want God against you. The people on that boat were so scared of their lives because they had no clue as to what they were going up against. And once they found out that there was a prophet in their midst going against God, they threw him out of the boat. You don't want to go against God. But when you're working for God and with God and towards the kingdom of God, the covenant promise is that he will be with you. He will be for you and not against you. He will safeguard you and he will strengthen you. That is an awesome promise. The same setup is in Haggai 2. Go work, for I am with you. And so I am declaring to you from both the Old and New Testaments, mustard seed. I am exhorting you, work and do not fear. Today is a new day. God is doing a new work. And His promise is that if we go making disciples, teaching men and women, mentoring them, discipling them, evangelizing then the promise is, I am with you. Oh God, we love you. And then we declare, God, no matter how small we may be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? We hold to that. Principle number three. God takes us from glory to glory. Or to put it differently, the new work will be more glorious than the old. Therein lies irony, by the way. God starts off this chapter in verse 3, calling people who could to recall the glory of the former temple. And in their memories, in comparison, the present temple is nothing. Now what is God doing? If you're a leader calling people to work, you don't bring up the glorious past and compare it to the minuscule present. That's demoralizing. Why does God do that? He has a purpose here. He does it so that He could absolutely break His people down to the point where they recognize that without God, they are absolutely nothing and that God is about to do a God work. That's what God is doing here. It's as if God makes them feel completely helpless in order to do a work that only God can do. He's calling them to faith. He's calling them to have faith in a better tomorrow. And He breaks us down first helps us understand our absolute and complete uh, helplessness, and then he builds us up. This is a very true principle, even on a micro-personal level. Think about it. Uh, What is the gospel? The gospel is the declaration that all human beings are helpless sinners who deserve hell from a holy, infinite God. It declares that God loved you so much, however, that He sent His only Son, who was fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for your sins. And three days later, He resurrected from the grave. But how do you get saved? You must first humble yourself and repent of your sins and turn and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, God, and Savior in order to have eternal life. Recognize that you are absolutely broken and helpless before you can even be saved. No one who is proud can ever be saved. The same works in our sanctification. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from our might... No, it doesn't say that. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So if you this year look more like Jesus than you did last year, then that's God. Christian, for every single one of you, your heart's desire should be, God, make me to love you more this year than I did last year. Make me sin against you less this year than I did last year. Make me fall more out of love in the world with you this year than last year. Because, brothers and sisters, God always takes us from one glory to another. You're more like Jesus this year than you were last year. And who did that? Was it you? No, it wasn't. It was God. Amen? Amen. It was God. God works. Of course, if God is doing that with us as individuals, then it goes without saying that He's doing the same thing with us corporately as a church. Let me put it this way. The, the, the whole is only as great as the sum of its parts. If you as individuals, when you go out during the week, are becoming more and more like Jesus each week, then what's going to be the result when you come together each Sunday? Well, to be honest, the temple will be further glorified and sanctified each and every single week literally the corporate whole is further glorified each week from one degree of glory to another but if we look at the text itself we have to recognize something that the verses here that we see verses 6-9 six through, six through nine, have not yet been fulfilled Verses 6 through 9 will not be fulfilled in its totality until Christ returns. Let's go over to uh, verse 7. Shaking the nations and the nations filling the house with the glory of God. Has that happened? In its totality, no. But in a fragment, yes. How? through the Great Commission. God said, go into all the world and make disciples out of all nations. And that's happening right now. Because as it's happening now, as the kingdom of God is breaking through right now, it's setting us up for the glorious day of Christ's return. By the way, we're not going to live in a heaven up in the sky. I hope you know this. What God will do is He will burn this world And He will create a new heaven and a new earth. He will renew this world, and we will live in this world renewed, with new bodies, resurrected, with no sin. And in that day, all the nations will come into the new Jerusalem, bringing in their glory, as it says in Revelation. The same similar languages here. Every king will bring in his glory, representing each nation. And God will be glorified, as it says in the book of Revelation. This fulfillment is not yet seen. It will one day be. However, Jesus gave us a command. We are to work tirelessly for this fulfillment. Do you see how Matthew 28 and Haggai 2 have tremendous parallels? The prophet and the apostle are urging us to the same end. To the end in which... One day, before the throne of God, every nation and every tribe will bow before King Jesus. He will no longer be a God merely of the Jews. He will be the God of every single nation. And for that, we work for our King. Amen? That's what we're going towards. But how will this occur? Well, let's read the text. It will not occur by strength. It will not occur by might. It will not occur by human brains. And it will not occur through human programming. But how? Verse 7. God will shake the nations. God will fill His house with glory. God will do it. God will do it. We cannot. And so we must humbly wait in His sovereign will. Missiologists have always been perplexed and confused by case studies where neighboring nations have tremendously disparate uh, disparate, uh, salvific accounts. For example, Japan has received missionaries and the gospel for decades yet very little converts and fruit. You cross the ocean a few miles to South Korea and yet you see something completely different. A nation where over 30% is now Christian. You go up north to China and you hear about what God is doing there. Reports are that in a few years China will be the largest Christian nation on earth. How amazing is that? But who did that? Well, prior to the Cultural Revolution, Chinese uh, missionaries, or I should say American missionaries who went to China, worked tirelessly. And then after the rebellion, they were all uh, sent out of the country. Up until that point, China saw very little fruit. After the missionaries were cast out, there was a revival to the point where we have so many Chinese Christians where we could say very soon China might become the largest Christian nation on earth and it wasn't through missionaries or the government it was through the weak feeble underground church if you watch some of these videos they look like this gatherings about this size maybe not on top of a tanning salon but inside apartments That's how the church has grown. In humble, seemingly nothing ways. It's almost as if God said, I'm waiting for the missionaries to leave so I get the glory for this. But we have to be patient. Does that mean um, we withdraw all the missionaries out of Japan? and put them into China because that's where the harvest is? Perhaps. Jesus himself said, you preach. If they reject you, what do you do? Put the dust of your feet. Dust it off. Next city. You take missiology classes in seminary. These are fascinating discussions back and forth among students. Um, does a farmer go to the, uh, the the field where a lot of fruit are being or could be gathered so X amount of energy, more fruit or do you stay, keep working at a a field with very little fruit Uh, and obviously souls are different from fields and so the argument can continue because if it was just that simple we would withdraw from fields that give very low return and invest heavily on fields with great return but some of that is there Missionary boards cut down. Sending missionaries to places where after a while, they just don't see fruit. Why? So they could get more fruit in areas where apparently God is moving. Tough discussions. And I would say, ultimately, if you're called to be a missionary to Japan, you go. But you also have to factor in, in the process, could this be really where God is calling me to? Will I be wasting my efforts here? Now, obviously, if God does call you, you're not wasting anything. But this is something you have to consider. Missions organizations have to think differently than you. Personal calls are different from corporate calls. And so these considerations all come into play. On Wednesday, I received the sad news that Southern Seminary was closing its extension center in New York and in Chicago because they did not meet the cutoff of 20 students. Uh, There are other extension centers. For example, the extension center in Tennessee is booming and thriving so much that they're pretty much their own seminary. They might as well be the seventh seminary for the SBC because that's how fruitful Tennessee is. But for years, New York has been abysmal. Uh, The desire for solid biblical teaching has been very weak. Uh, I remember, uh, even a decade ago, doing my MDiv work, sitting in classes with nine or fewer people. And for all those years, uh, apparently the seminary operated at a loss. Uh, A number of years ago, I had dinner with the former president of Midwestern Seminary, the school I go to now. He was my head at the time when I was the associate director for the Extension Center. So we met at Blue Bay Diner, and we had a meal together. And he gave me the numbers, and he said, we're operating New York right now at a loss. Because it's New York City and it's the capital of the world, uh, Dr. Mueller and Southern, we want to have a site here. But the numbers every single year, we're, we're, we're getting money from other sources to fund New York at a loss each year. Because the numbers, the enroll- enrollment numbers just aren't there. And, and he told me, if this continues, we have no choice but to shut it down. They were operating at a loss. And uh, very rarely did the class size ever get into double digits. Double digits, d- digits meaning ten people or more. And ten years later, things haven't changed much. Um, I, s- some people are telling me that th- there are classes with four people. And as uh, this professor was, was explaining to me all of this, he also shared with me what he did years ago in Chicago. He did in Chicago what I'm doing in New York. He planted a church, and uh, he also taught bivocationally. Now, he had a Ph.D., so he taught at the local college. And so he taught, and he also uh, planted a church. He did the work in Chicago for about 10 years. And it's, it's literally the same type of work mostly young people, good amount of college students, uh, very difficult work in a very postmodern city, liberal city. Uh, and he did it as much as he could. He did it for 10 years, but ultimately the soil was difficult. The church never grew really to more than 40 people. And, uh, and after years and years of doing it, the Lord, he felt, was moving him on to a different work. And eventually um, he had to go on. I will say this, cities like New York and Chicago, I don't know if you're aware of it, have a hard time winning souls for Christ. You might say, well, why do schools like NIAC and Alliance thrive? I'll tell you why. When you have women teaching preaching classes, and you have very open doctrine. It's easier to bring in students, but when when you try to really stay as close as possible to this book, it gets tough. It gets really tough. And they're not even as stringent, I believe, on certain areas as they could be. But even then it's difficult. The soil is very rocky and thorny up here. What was once the place of the, the first Great Awakening, a lot of missiologists have said has just burnt out. Organizations like Nine Marks are trying to create a re- 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 renewal in New England. They're looking for ways to partner and pay for seminaries to students to come up to the Northeast because it's just dead. It's very difficult ground. So one of the members here, and you all know who he is, he, uh, he gave me a text on Wednesday, um, and he asked me for advice. He said, maybe this is God's way of telling me I need to go down to Louisville and just go full-time. I, I, I want to go to the mission field, and I need to get trained. But now they're closing the extension center down. And So we, I said, you know what, don't jump, just go there yet. Let's, let's talk. So we met up and talked. And we've decided, um, well, for all the students who are presently enrolled, they're going to waive the tech fee, which is $250 every year. And so for the next two years at least, he's going to do his classes online because he doesn't see a clear call for moving to Louisville as of yet. So that's how, what we decided, and that's a big decision. But yet the truth remains. What do we do with New York City? after discussing this with him and coming to a conclusion and he's saying, yeah, I'm going to stay in New York at least for the next two years and continue my studies online uh, and, and work the ministry here in New York City for two years. I then said, that's great. My thought then went to seed. I thought about where we are and where we're headed as a church. Now, I know you all have your own beliefs as to why people have left. And I suppose you could say that I have my own beliefs as to why people have left. But at the end of the day, regardless of your thoughts on why people have left, the fact remains, they've left. And we are smaller. Now what? Well, here's what. Verse 9. Let's go to verse 9. Verse 9 says, "...the latter glory of this house shall be glory greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give my peace. That right there is my prayer for Mustersi Church. Remember, I don't think this book and this text couldn't have come at a more appropriate time for the life of our church. It ought to be your prayer. Look at every segment of that prayer. God, please fill this house with your glory. God, fill this house with the nations. Not just Asians, but nations. God, take us from glory to glory. Make our future brighter than our past. And God, give us peace. I long for that. I think we're weary of conflict. And we're saying, God, give us peace. That's such an appropriate prayer for us as a church. Let the bleeding out stop so that we could begin doing work. For our future is more glorious than our past. See, I, I don't... Like I said, I think every person, every missionary has to look at his own specific call. Japan's not getting much fruit, but Michael O. Oh went to Japan, and his ministry is very fruitful, though Japan as a whole is not. Each calling is unique. I sincerely believe that God has called me here to New York City, as He has called my father, I believe this is a continuation of the Great Commission. I'm committed to this city. I'm committed to this church. Because more than anything else, I'm committed to God. Remember what I said? If, if it was about me and be, me building it and me getting a doctorate and me programming, then this is all going to fail. The soil in New York is too rocky and hard. It's not going to work. My personality, my need for sanctification, all of these things will work against me and it will utterly fail. But, if it's the Lord God who's saying all this, right, says the Lord of hosts, then I can have firm confidence that God will do this. At the end of the day, you might say, well, where's the proof? And you know what? I would respond by saying, I have nothing but faith. But that's a good place to be. Let's pray.